Bonjour et bienvenue to a Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon, or as I am keen to say, welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. And uh, as you can tell, the um, retirement or the uh, diminished production of one episode a week, two episodes a month, th that plan is working out remarkably well. Um, yeah, since since I've decided to do that, I think I've put out eight episodes in two weeks. So that's, it's good on you. You have a plan, yeah, you stick to it. Uh, and speaking of a plan, author Martin Popov has had plans for his books over the years, and he is here today to talk about Anthem, Rush in the 1970s. He has uh, put together a Rush trilogy, because there's three members in the band, and they've were around for, I don't know. Anyway, uh, he's got Rush in the 70s. The book is called Anthem. Later on this year, there will be the uh, 80s, a book on, uh, on Rush through the 80s, and then uh, early next year, Rush uh, through the 90s and beyond. And of course, uh, Martin uh, and I used to uh, work together at a place called Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles magazine, which eventually became bravewords.com. Uh, it was a good place, a nice, a nice place to, to launch a career. I mean, if you look at the site now, it's, it is, uh, kind of sad. It's not exactly the, uh, the shining beacon that it used to be. It has slowly eroded and become just, uh, eh, you know, and then possibly, possibly, I'm just throwing that out there, um, since they don't really pay anybody, uh, could be a reason why there's just not a lot of great content, but anyway, Listen, uh, go, go check out bravewords.com. Have at it, whatever. Nobody cares. Uh, anyway, uh, let us talk uh, Rush with uh, Martin, a great Canadian band. And uh, you know what? Here's the thing. Uh, Martin, one of his feathers in his cap is the fact that he gave Def Leppard's Hysteria, one of the greatest albums of all time, not only for the uh, musical content, the uh, historic uh, perspective, the iconic uh, songs, the, the the landmark when you think back to hair metal or whatever. There are certain songs like Pour Some Sugar On Me and stuff, which are absolutely, absolutely iconic. And he, he gave the album a, a zero on ten. So uh, we discussed that as well. Uh, you know, the, you, you, you have to look at what a... Uh, Anyway, you, you, we're, we're just going to look at it because uh, you can say what you want, but it's not a, a zero on ten, and it, it's just hard to 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 accept that. Anyway, we we have a, a joking moment talking about the Def Leppard album, but there we go. Let us get over to our guest. It is the one, the only, from well, he's from nowhere. He's just author Martin Popoff. We are speaking with a noted heavy metal writer Martin Popov. Anthem, Rush in the 70s, is the new book. Uh, Martin, we've known each other for many, many years, and as we say in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Hey, bonjour. I'm doing fine. It's great hearing from you. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because we, we've hung out together. We've gone to shows together, and, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever say, I'm going to be interviewing him because we just chat. 
So, <laughs> so let's get into this interview thing. Let's talk Rush. Uh, we've got a lot to... Now, this is, for folks that don't know, is the new book, Anthem Rush in the 70s, is one of three, correct? Yes. We're doing Rush, uh, or Anthem Rush in the 70s, and then in the fall, there will be Limelight Rush in the 80s, and then the spring of 2021, there will be driven rush in the 90s and then in quote marks in the end which takes us right up to the end so it's uh they've they've all been long written for a long time um probably over a year actually um and it's going to add up to about 360,000 words of uh of just kind of my most definitive everything but the kitchen sink you know proper very very wordy not a lot of pictures uh rush story wow that's a, that's impressive and such a great story so all right let me start off with this because i'm mitch the kiss guy so we will go back to kiss paul stanley said of rush in a 2018 interview that they were the most exciting opening band kiss has ever had now of course rush in the 70s is when kiss did open or rush did open for kiss what was it about Rush and what is it about Rush as we're looking back here from the 2020 perspective that made them or made Paul Stanley say that this was the most exciting band? Well, I guess a few different things. I mean, number one, you had this novelty voice in Getty Lee. I mean, that was a voice that was just crazy. And Kiss, Kiss is one of my favorites for vocals because they got four great vocalists, right? So um, they're looking at this guy and it's like, wow, so this guy's got a crazy voice, number one. Number two, they're inventing a whole new genre of music. It's literally progressive metal for the first time ever. They they just, they just bald face take progressive rock and heavy metal and smush them together, right? And they, they created this new genre. Um, they were obviously very opposite of Kiss in that they were very like complicated and note dense and lots and lots of crazy parts to the song. So they were doing something totally different. But the Kiss guys are great musicologists. They love, they can appreciate great art even if it doesn't sound like them, right? So they they are looking at this band um, and just seeing something really cool and unique and, and rightly something they'd never seen before. Plus the Rush guys were nice guys. They were easy to get along with. Um, you know, I'm sure they, it, you know, you knowing from the pictures and whatnot, I'm sure they all got on like a house on fire. Um, and it was just, a, you know, a great time to be, uh, you know, two young bands, exciting young bands. Uh, they each had their own really cool things about them, and they were both like obviously on their way up. Yeah, they actually absolutely were. And and I'm looking at the uh, table of contents on your book. Why didn't you dedicate an entire chapter to Kiss? I'm just just asking. <laughs> That's just a curious question. You know, there is a lot of kiss in there, though. I, I, mean, I know. There's a lot of them crossing over with those guys, and uh, and yeah, it's some of some of Rush's fondest memories are are touring with the Kiss guys. Of course. Uh, so when you get to set, when you sit down to write this book or these three books, right, three hundred thousand words. What's sort of the, the the starting point in terms of getting the idea together? you know, laying out a plan. How do you sort of approach the book writing process? Well, there's there's a bit of a story here. So number one, the, the, I did the official Rush book, um, Contents Under Pressure, through ECW, this Toronto publisher here, you know, mid-size respected publisher. So that was an official book back in 2003, right? So then I did this illustrated history, and I said, I'm going to have no overlap with that. That was for a big publisher in the States. And that I used a lot of the available press, and there were some other elements to it. Then I did this album by album book, which had no overlap. So 
I also worked on that movie with the banger guys, right? I was kind of like the research guy at the very beginning, right? So basically, this idea came to me at one point, and I just approached the guys at the banger barbecue one day and said, hey, you know, what if we what if we did a little bit of a deal? I flip you some cash, and I'm allowed to use, uh, you know, all this great interview material that I personally transcribed almost all of it as well, um, that we never got to use in the movie. And they were fine with that. The Rush office was fine for that. Rush's lawyer is a buddy of mine, David. He was at the party. He just says, oh, yeah, go talk to Scott. Talk to Peggy. Yeah, if it's all fine, it's fine with me. Um, so basically, um, basically, there was all this great cache of material in conjunction with the fact that the official book was through this same publisher. And I went to ECW and the first idea was like, let's just write the mother of all Rush books. Let's just write one big, awesome book. But then when I started getting into it, I realized I have enough for three long books here. And so I quickly went back to ECW. We redid the deal and said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. We're gonna call the first one Anthem, the second one Limelight, the next one Driven, and we're gonna make three books. We're gonna make this a trilogy. And they were fine with that and, and that's what happened. So. But to answer your other question, I mean, I just basically start slotting stuff into these chapters. Every chapter is one album of these books uh, and most of the books I do, really. And then I just start slotting stuff in and I even like make the song titles in like 36 point and then put those all in. I put album cover, production or writing production, mixing. And then at the end of it, and you'll notice this if you read any of my books that they're starting to follow this thing. When I get to the end, it's like, how did it do in the marketplace? Here's some reviews. Now we talk about the tour. So I have all these big headings and I just start throwing everything in place so I don't feel totally overwhelmed, you know, when I get this massive bank of material. And then all the times I've talked to Rush myself, uh, you know, all that stuff, of course, goes in as well. Um, but yeah, you just start putting it into place so you're not just hit with this avalanche of stuff all at once. Okay. And so so how do you... you, you... Uh, how do you check the veracity of the information? Because, you know, some of the stuff, obviously, in the 70s, you weren't there. So how is it just sort of word of mouth? You just Google it. How, how do you get in deep and get all the stories and, and get them out? A whole lot of everything, a whole lot of Googling and, yes, believing and looking at Wikipedia, uh, but uh, but also, uh, you know, way more other interviews that are out there corroborating the two or three or four times the guys themselves talked about this. These books are a lot of these are in their own words and in a lot of the words of people who were there and, and, and some just really like a lot of producers and engineers and everything. So it's it's basically. Um, these books have a lot of primary interview source material. So there's a lot of that. But yeah, so there's fact checking along the way, looking at liner notes, uh, comparing dates, saying, well, they couldn't have been there to do that because they were over here to do this, you know, finding errors in the world. Um, there are a lot of Rush scholars who have put together, you know, really nice tour itineraries and things like that. Um, but yeah, just uh, just checking and, and looking at other Rush books that are out there. There aren't that many. And I guess I've written three of them so far and there's another three um so yeah you can you can basically figure it all out and then there's editors at the publisher so when you're dealing with a really professional publisher they'll look up stuff too and check things and 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 you know find errors that you made in spelling people's names and stuff like that right so yeah it it eventually all comes out in the wash and then if you can't figure out the answer you just leave it vague <laughs> yeah you do it right you do the uh, question mark at the end of everything so all right so rush in the 70s let's, let's get into the band let's get into john rusty let's get into the whole thing but uh at the end of the book you say that they were a uh headlining act struggling to become rock royalty 
talk to me about those formative years and and why do you think it took sort of that long for Rush to get to that next level? Whereas if you look at uh, the Kisses or the Black Sabbath, you know, one album in, two albums in, three albums in, they're they're the next, you know, the biggest thing since sliced bread. Why was it sort of a slow burn for Rush? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it really was because they were essentially a, a you know a working band. Lineups changing here and there, starting all the way back to '69. First album is '74. Um, but you know, they they make a splash. They're kind of like working, doing all the things rock bands can do. Essentially, you know, by you know, but by basically the tour for the first album, they're already into the States. So they're moving along. The second album does pretty good. The third album, there's a bit of a dip, Caress of Steel, but they, but they make it pretty, pretty darn big by 2112. I mean, it, it goes gold. And by that point, they're truly in there as a working band. They're moving up to the theaters and stuff. So, so they're, they're paying the dues, Put it this way, they're paying the dues part of it, okay, is is really most of that takes place at home or essentially in Ontario. Okay, so that's the first 69 to 74. After that, sure, they pay some dues, but it really they're really only paying the dues of of like the total grind and being, you know, you know, malnourished on the road and all that stuff for really 74, 75, 76. So they get there relatively quick, not as fast. You know, it really uh, not as fast as Kiss, but over the same length of albums as Kiss. Kiss doesn't have that long, long lead up, right? Um, Sabbath, you're right. Sabbath makes it basically right away. I mean, from 69, by, by literally six months or eight months or a year, they're already a pretty decent sized band, right? And, and they were doing something pretty extraordinary too. They were essentially inventing heavy metal, let alone, you know, R- Rush's crossing genres, right, at this point. But so, so yeah, they get there. And so, as you say, at the end of the book, one of the cool things about Rush is they don't spend a lot of time as a, as a, uh, as a backup act. They, they essentially become a headliner, um, even though it's on a small scale for a while and it, and it's really on a shoestring. That's the other thing. I mean, even when they're a headliner for quite a few years there, um, they're pouring all their money back into the situation, into the live situation, uh, into staying on the road. So they're not making much money until probably you could say, a few months, six months or so after even moving pictures and beyond is is when when it starts really kind of paying off for them. So, you know, there's there's that sort of hidden thing that all bands kind of don't talk about, that even when people think you're rock stars, there's still a good four or five year lag be, before you're you're kind of really making much money at it. Right. Yeah, it, re- it really is. And uh, by the way, you mentioned Black Sabbath. I will I will give you a free plug. Your book, Sabotage Black Sabbath in the 70s. <laughs> 129,000 words uh, says the press release. What a what a what a beauty. Uh so just quickly on that. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of compare what Black Sabbath was doing and what Rush was doing cuz they, they they are these innovators. You've said so yourself that yeah. they that they were inventing heavy metal, they were inventing this sort of heavy metal progressive. What was it about those two bands that sort of caught the the attention and the fancy of fans back then because at some point you got to go I, I don't hear rock around the clock i don't hear elvis here what is this nonsense right how was it that they were able to establish these new sounds yeah that's a really neat question and and it's neat that you're kind of comparing the two because you're right i mean the idea with sabbath they're they're completely brand new inventing heavy metal you know the the um 
the the tritone the 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 not being a blues band although they come from the blues i i i always maintain they have no blues in their sound once they become black sabbath especially by the second album but so what ca- what caught everybody's attention with sabbath immediately i think people's antenna did go up that this was a new kind of music plus they were writing about horror themes and stuff it was pretty ghoulish lyrics at the same time right and with rush again the same thing they're seeing something that is completely brand new nobody was doing progressive and heavy metal together and and you know honestly i i almost look at rush as as a progressive rock band with a distortion pedal turned on. I mean, that's that's literally it. I mean, that that's that's how how you know direct the tie is between the hard rock and and the and you're right, no blues in it at all. This is a very white band, right? There's no there's no rock and roll. There's no blues. It is a prog band. It is a very British sounding band. Um, but other than them, you know, I I always grasp at straws trying to think of anybody who is even close. I think of Kansas, Styx, maybe a little bit King Crimson, but really nothing else out there. But even Sabbath, they they consider, you know, some people consider Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Sabotage a little bit close to the progressive metal realm because they are quite daring and creative. Right. But uh, but no, I mean, and, and the other crazy thing about Russian progressive metal is nobody dared copy them or even or even say that there is a genre here besides this one band until the likes of, say, Queensryche or Fate's Warning. Uh, there's that little progressive blip that happens with like IQ and Pendragon and Marillion. But that's more like straight progressive. And then you then you takes it takes you all the way up into the likes of Dream Theater. And then now we have a huge progressive metal genre and, and progressive metal means about seven or eight different things now right but uh but no it was just crazy unique music for the time and you either loved it or you hated it and that was underscored even because you had this novelty vocalist right um but it did catch on with 2112 it was like okay we accept it these guys are not going away this is pretty incredible stuff there's no one else doing this if i need one album in my collection that sounds like this there's only one band making that album i gotta buy 2112 yeah you do And, and by the way the 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 naming of all these different genres always drives me crazy because if you remember in 1988, you know, Poison was considered heavy metal. And you go, no, no, you're not, yeah. you're not, you're not heavy metal. But all right, let's uh, let's get over to uh, drummer John Rusty. We, of course, uh, all know that Rush's drummer is Neil Peart. But before that, there was John. Uh, how, how do you see his role in the history of the, of the band? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, he's... The interesting thing is, you look at that cool early footage that uh, that Banger found for uh, for the um, the movie. It was like the coolest footage we could possibly find. I mean, I, like I say, I was in there at research. I wasn't there that day, but some guys went to the rush office and found this little little tape of of an odd format that they had to you know find a machine to play this on uh, with a little sticky on it that says "What the what the f is this?" and that was it, right? Um, Rush didn't even know why they had it, but it was a it was a properly filmed by a TV station high school show, and it was John Rutsey as drummer. It's the only moving live footage they have of of John Rutsey. There's there's a radio interview of him, but what you see in this is he's actually kind of the leader of the band. He's uh, not so much a leader, but he's the, he's the MC. He's announcing the songs and all this stuff from the drum thing. So he's a little bit of the Ace Freely. He's the rock and roller, the wild guy. You know, he's not tr- not taking 
very good care of himself. Uh, he's a little volatile. Um, personally speaking, he's got diabetes as well. He's like the glam guy. He's also the guy who likes sort of the bad company bluesy rock thing. And these other guys, you know, Getty and Alex don't really know what they they are yet. They're going along with it almost. Their personalities are not formed, really. Their personalities form when this whirlwind comes into town, Neil Peart, and uh, and completely changes the whole complexion of the band, right? He brings in the literary aspect, the uh, you know the, the raising of the game of everybody as players. He reminds everybody that they all love progressive rock and why don't we do this thing where we combine the two? I mean, things just take off like crazy with that second album. So yeah, John's point in the band, it's almost like, he is the guy that anchors Rush to a sound that is on its way out, frankly. I mean, Kiss's sound is a little on the way out, actually. Uh, Aerosmith's sound, I mean, all the, Aerosmith, Ted, Kiss, they have a great run until about 1979. But, it's, but it is a sound that really is, uh, is kind of of its day, and it's kind of going to go away a little bit. Rush is like in there, um, you know, with John Rutsey, they are essentially sounding like, Kiss or Montrose or Aerosmith on that first album, or Led Zeppelin, of course, they got compared to them a lot. But with Neil coming in, it's a whole new ballgame. It really is. So let me ask you this, because we follow each other on socials, and I'm sure at some point you've seen me rant about drum solos and how I don't like drum solos at shows because I say fans pay for songs, so play a bloody song. And everybody writes back, oh, well, then you haven't seen a Neil from Rush. And it's like, yes, I have. So, yeah. Okay, so what is it about a Neil drum solo that sets it above and beyond the other ones? Why, why is that the, the point where it's like, all right, Mitch, be quiet. Go watch the, the master at work. Well, that is a very interesting question because it actually goes to the magic of the drums actually on Rush albums. Like I've often said that Neil is the Beatles of drummers. And what I mean by that, there's two ways he is actually. But the main way is that the guy makes singable hooks on drums. He's the most air-drummed drummer of all time. So there's that way. And the other way is he's probably one of the top two or three greatest influences on drummers, the way Beatles, you know, basically turned on way more people than anybody in terms of wanting to be a rock star. Second, of course, is Kiss. I mean, it's basically the Beatles and Kiss and maybe Led Zeppelin, right, are, are the most influential bands on turning people into, I got to do this for a living, right? And Neil is like that with drummers you know you could look at john bonham and maybe ginger baker and keith moon but I, I think neil is probably the most influential light bulb goes off in the head drummer so he's that in the songs he's very singable and musical when it comes to the solo he also takes that ethic over to the solo and and he puts it together he sequences it together he's got the two drum sets going so he gives you a little acoustic he gives you a little electric he gives you that big band thing in there with the synthesizers going off and the sound of course the rush show is amazing too so he doesn't overstay his welcome but he's he's got so many cool things to hit and so many things to do and he paces it so well that it's not dull having said that it is more dull even to me than a song. I would rather hear a song any day. I'm I'm absolutely with you, Mitch. I don't want to hear a drum solo, and God forbid I don't want to hear a bass solo, right? right. The, the bane of everybody's existence, right? Well, <laughs> and, and, and by the way, and I'm just going to point this out. It's in terms of pricing with tickets now being, you know, most tickets <laughs> for an arena show are starting at 150 bucks, And it's like, listen, you, you go see, for example, I'm not going to say Kiss. 
you go, you pay 150 bucks, you go see Kiss, they do 17 pieces, 15 are songs, and you know, or 14 are songs, three are solos, and you go, well, wait a minute, you didn't play this song, and they go, well, we don't have time for it. It's like, yeah, you do. Take out the eight-minute solo. You've got time for three songs, right? So that yeah. that's my point, because, listen, if I go to a drum show and I see, you know, a drum clinic or whatever, and I see somebody, I'm, I'm all into it because that's what I'm paying for. Yeah. But people are paying for hits. So anyway, it drives me crazy. But all right, Neil, Neil is the greatest. So I'm, I'm going to quickly move over to uh, 1981 here uh, real quick. I know the book is the 70s, but Exit Stage Left was uh, recorded in Montreal on March 27th, 1981 at the Forum, a show that I was at and Max Webster opened, and it was phenomenal. So um, talk to me about that album and what it, because it, to me it's a career-defining album. What, is it did, what did it do for the band, and what was it about the band live that just, you know, once you got it captured, you understood it. You could look at the albums and stuff, but once you, that's sort of like Kiss, right? Once you hear them live, you go, oh, right, now I got it. Um Talk to me a little bit about that album and and the live show in general. Yeah, well, that's, of course, that album came out at the absolute peak, as Neil says in the movie and probably says in slightly different ways in the book. I guess this will be the second book, but they were the it band at that point. It's like everybody was super, super excited about Rush. They're coming off of moving pictures, right, where where every song on side one, all four of them are hits. Every single one of those songs got played on the radio all the time and none of the songs on the second side, oddly enough. Um, So they're coming in with that. But the funny thing about that album is the band is a little not crazy about it. They think and, and somewhat rightly so that it's sort of the bloated second live album. There's a there's a sort of a golden age of live albums that is previous to that. So it's so it takes in the excitement of all the world's a stage, but Live and Dangerous from Thin Lizzy, Kiss Alive 1 and 2, or as I say, Kiss Alive exclamation mark, Kiss Alive 2, no exclamation mark, right? Um, but um, and, and know, Kiss All in Caps. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I don't like that. I I, I rail against that when I write books. Kisses up, upper lowercase. Anyways, um, <laughs> but uh, you know the UFO strangers in the night and Frampton comes alive and all and, and Blue Oyster Cult. But but when these bands make their second live album, some of the excitement is a little bit gone, right? And with that Kiss one, it, it felt the same way. Like Judas Priest unleashed in the East, but the second one Priest live Priest dot dot live, you know live, that horrible brown cover, right? So at this point, it's it it. Just feels a little bit bloated. That album does have that. It, it does feel like you're in a big hockey arena, uh, whereas the first one sounds like a little more explosive. And that was at Massey Hall, interestingly enough, also with Max Webster supporting. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was a it was a beautiful, magical time for the band. I don't think it really did much for the band. I mean, it wasn't an album that everybody kind of talked about as something that was absolutely helping their career or whatever. It was just the live album. And because it was the second live album, like I say, at that point, you know, it diminishes a bit. I was having an argument with with somebody the other day, not an argument, but a debate that that the CD age killed the live album, I think, um, because they just got longer and longer and you got triple live albums and then it was crossed with the DVD and you didn't know if it, whether to call it an album or not. And then Rush, of course, is is, you know, quite, quite big with the travesty of putting out way too many live albums. Everybody accelerated and put out live albums way too often. So that took away some of the excitement. So by the time Rush did a show of hands, 
the excitement level around it was even less. So I think that first one has a lot of excitement. And, and you know, you look you look at that track listing and and, uh, and what happens over that record. They were a really heavy band on that album. There were not that many heavy metal bands in the 70s. So for that album to be that heavy, it really does stand out as, wow, these guys actually are a hard rock band. Oh, um, absolutely. But yeah, Exit Stage Left was, was still a pretty cool, and, and one of the greatest album covers of all time right sampling from all the artwork on the front and the back that was really cool about it too yeah it was and and you know listen the fact that i was there has yeah. it holds a special place <laughs> in my heart um yeah. i know that this is not covered in the book but we're, we're gonna i'm just gonna mention this uh moving into the 80s and moving into the mtv era rush had to start making videos and i've always perceived the rush videos as almost uncomfortable they always they always seemed like they were uncomfortable it wasn't you know you look at a motley crew video and there's strippers here and there's they just look like they're having fun the, the rush um how do you think for them that transition was because being a 70s progressive rock band in the 70s you didn't have to worry about that you just got to be musicians um how do you think they translated to being actors you know video actors yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, I number one, they they always joked about how they didn't really know how to dress. They didn't know what to do with their hair. So they're, they're having that problem. They also have this other problem where, you know, they're they're so intellectually curious that they are our first adopters of things, right? So they're first adopters when it comes to like keyboard and synthesizer technology, and they get into a lot of trouble with that, with those albums, because those albums sound really dated because they did that. Aerosmith never did that. Um, Kiss never did that. Uh, ACDC never did that. So those records sound more or less like their 70s records, and time has proven over time that... Those 70s records are not something to be embarrassed about. There is a timeless quality. So if you did that same thing in the 80s, those records have a pretty timeless quality too. Rush's albums really sound dated to that time. Now, that's not to say that in 10 years or 20 years, 80s sounds are going to be looked at as the coolest thing on earth. That was amazing what they did, what visionaries. These are These are like masterpieces, right? But it hasn't happened yet. People are not calling Hold Your Fire and Power Windows masterpieces, right? So the same thing carries over to to the videos. They were early adopters of every electronic gizmo you could possibly think of. So there are all these dated early early Atari video game effects in them, right? And uh, and so so they do look a little embarrassing um, because they were trying. It's it's like the early Peter Gabriel videos. They were really lauded at the time, but now they look kind of dated. Right. But they so they're in there the same parallel using every trick and gizmo in video. And and, you know, I mean, it served them well eventually because they brought so much video into their shows and they were essentially pioneers of having the absolute state of the art video all through the late 80s and into the 90s and then forward that that frankly you know it's probably one of the reasons they were so massively successful for the next couple couple three decades is that their live show was so good because they spent so much time thinking about it and being early adopters of things that by the time these things became um you know more commonplace and more sophisticated and complicated they were absolutely right there it's like well hey man we've been doing this all along but uh yeah i agree with you the the videos and this is obviously when they're making that super electronic music so these songs are not are not like the classic rush sound i mean it's it's 
frankly, the stuff I'm not that crazy about still to this day. But you will you will find many, many rush armies of fans who will swear by those records and say, oh, man, it's even better than the 70s stuff. So so it's like, yeah, we all fall into camps on this stuff. Right. And and you have people telling me that, uh, you know, crazy, crazy nights is better than dressed to kill. And you just go, yeah, OK, sit down. Sit down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you uh, and I uh, will we'll start wrapping up, of course. Uh, Anthem Rush in the 70s. You can order it online now. Um, but you did mention the words masterpiece and a pioneer. And so I have to throw this in there. Uh, one of the greatest masterpieces, of course, of the 80s and a pioneer in recording uh, Mutt Lang and Def Leppard's Hysteria, which you have discussed at nauseum because you gave it a zero on 10. <laughs> So, we are going to talk about this for a couple of minutes. I currently have a 339-song Def Leppard playlist in my phone. There is no bad Def Leppard. Um, uh, how can I put this? What's wrong with you? That's the way. Okay, so <laughs> to, to, to tell you why I still stand by all that is really what I just said about Rush. I mean, I think, I think basically... Def Leppard took this gamble, I mean, it's a gamble that paid off to the tune of Diamond Records, obviously, uh, but they took this gamble with their sound, and they adopted this sound that at the time seemed like genius, and everybody kind of loved it and thought, oh, this is pretty interesting, but it is not dated well, so I don't I don't think Adrenalize and Hysteria sound any better to my ears than they did then, and I hated it then, but I do love the synthesis of like the early genesis, the early excitement of this sound on pyromania. I love pyromania, right? Um, and and so here they are kind of uh, striking this balance that still sounds good to my ear. Now, frankly, it sounds good to my ear because I'm I'm old, right? By 1983, I'm 20 and and I'm loving my 70s stuff. So I'm still hearing I'm still hearing some humanity to it. But I hate I hate those vocals. I love when Queen would stack vocals. I hate when Def Leppard does it. It sounds like an army of asthmatics to me. Um, and the lyrics are so inane. I don't even want to start going into that. The lyrics are horrible um, throughout all that what? Def Leppard stuff. They're not radar love? Come on. Uh, what's that? Poor, poor uh, razzle dazzle, whatever it is. Yeah, right. I suppose a rock is out of the question. Right. right? But okay, yeah. but, but I have to ask you this because you're right on one point that the technology dates it, but the technology was used primarily because Rick Allen, the drummer, had one arm and they couldn't have a acoustic drum sound. So I'll ask you this. Do you think then that they should have said, hey, you know, Rick, so we, sorry about the accident, but we're a band. And should they have stayed to an organic drummer? For, what a horrible term I just invented. Or, or, or can you at least sort of say, okay, listen, I... I don't like it, but I'm going to have to give them a pass because they didn't have an option. No, I, I think I think they could have easily kept him and had a more organic drum sound. But I'm saying the guitars sound horrible. The lyrics sound horrible. The, the stacked vocals sound horrible. The songwriting is literally like, let's take Brian Adams and let's add about one and a half percent, you know, uh, intensity to Brian Adams. And that that'll be our band. What do you guys think? I mean, I, I just think there's just no personality to any of that material. Uh, I, I just I get angry listening to those lyrics. They're just they just make me stupider listening to them. Um, but, you know, this is coming from someone who loved on through the night and worshipped 
you know, uh, high and dry and and actually really thinks Pyromania is a really cool album, too. So it's not like I'm a hater. And I, I love the idea that they are such deep fans of music. But, you know, and then as time goes on, it just really annoys me when they they start comparing themselves to Led Zeppelin and Queen and all this. And and it's just like I'm not I'm not buying any of it. It's basically um, travesty after travesty after travesty in terms of bad taste in what they're doing. All right. So <laughs> first of all, there's no comparing them to Led Zeppelin. They are better, period. Uh <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Uh, second of all, High and Dry is definitely their best album, period. Uh, and choosing Women as a first single for the album was an awful, awful idea. I don't know who ever thought of that. And I'll give you this. If I never hear the, the song Rocket again in my life, <laughs> I'm good with that. That it, I enjoyed it back in 87, the fact that I go to a concert in 2020 and it's still in the set list, you just look at that going, the <laughs> fuck are you thinking? Like, why is it in a, why is it in a set list in 2020? Like, yeah. okay. I got to say one other thing about Def Leppard that blew me away. I mean, I saw them live about, well, what is it now? 2020. So I saw them live somewhere around 2013-ish, I'd say, Molson Amphitheater. And they were heavy as hell. I could not believe the power coming off of the stage. And so, and you know, granted, some of that power would have been applied to songs from Hysteria and Pyromania. And obviously, they would have sounded better to me because of that. But I just, and but but the songs that I loved from Pyromania and from High and Dry, I mean, I, I was blown away at how heavy they sounded live. So that was cool. The other cool thing I want to say about Def Leppard that I thought, you know, like a lot of people don't talk about with them is this idea. I coined this term. Maybe a lot of people don't understand what I'm talking about, but Geronimo riffs. And I think Def Leppard, Black Sabbath, Soundgarden and the Def Leppard clones in Heavy Petten are pretty much the only bands that know how to do this. And what I mean by that is these these songs that sound like they're like um uh, like North American Indian war chant sort of melodies to them. And there's quite a few of them on Pyromania. And it really gave them this sort of Swedish metal vibe almost, like this really cool European New Ava British heavy metal slash Swedish vibe. And when they did those vocals on Pyromania, they did sound epic next to this idea of these Geronimo riffs. An example is uh, Fulin's Chorus, say. Um, Die Hard the Hunter. Uh, is that what it's called? Die Hard the Hunter, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Great yeah. song. So so they really had this really kind of cool thing going with these melodies. But then they gave it all up. They just wanted to be Brian Adams. And they and they, and that's what they did. They were essentially became a slightly heavier version of Brian Adams. And it was all over for me at that point. All right. All right. And I got to say, I saw Brian Adams open up for Def Leppard in 2004. Terrific show. It was terrific. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was. I'm sure you could be entertained by it you know i mean there's hooks and all that stuff and the songs are simple and blah 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 but i just don't care I don't you know care. i'll tell you this uh and we'll end on this but writing for for brave words like you did and i did uh i got labeled as the metal guy for many many years the metal guy the metal guy the metal guy and and i do love metal i do go to judas priest shows i do go to iron maiden shows i go to sabbath shows i enjoy all that stuff of course um, but ultimately I've discovered that I'm a melodic rock fan. And so I like the harmonies. I like the fluffy stuff. I like cotton candy, you know, give me, 
Give me poison over Led Zeppelin any day. I know, I know. Listeners are. Going, I like oh. when it's done with some brains, though, right? And there's a lot of bands, yeah. that, right? I mean, if you want to take it to the extreme, like King's X, you know, nothing more melodic and harmonic and everything than that. So, so that's an example of people like doing it with a, just a little bit of thought behind it. And I love so many hair metal bands. I came late to Poison. I still don't even like early Poison, but I love what's it called, Holly Weird, Holly Weird, right? Yeah. Uh, the songs on Crack a Smile and more, like like um like the, just and even the late Motley Crue stuff. I mean, I loved uh, New Tattoo and so so I love that stuff too. But I, I just want to hear it with either some brains to it or some grit to it, but not this super processed, dated thing. And uh, I don't know. And and like I say, even I love big vocal harmonies. And I love when Queen does it. I love when Van Halen does it with Mikey. But I don't like it when Def Leppard does it. I don't know. Well, that's that's because they they do it better, and you get jealous. And I I understand that. I understand that. But anyway, uh, Martin, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Always a pleasure. And uh, we we're doing Rush in the seventies. We shall do the Rush in the eighties book in um, I guess October is coming out. Yeah, hopefully, if uh, if if the if you turn the taps on and water still comes out. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully. So we'll do that then, and uh, I'm going to. Uh, Wait after I post this to see all the comments about I said poison was greater than Led Zeppelin. Oh, I've gotten myself into a heap of trouble. But, you know, what are you going to do? Cool, man. This is a great chat. I I wish we would do this more often. I don't care what we talk about. We don't have to talk about my books. We can talk about whatever you want. Absolutely. (laughs) Let me just turn off the recorder. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon.